hey there and welcome back to Culture and the Cross, where we look at relevant cultural topics through the lens of the cross to better understand what Christians should think, feel, and believe about the world around them. I'm your host, Nick Clay, and today we are asking, is this the beginning of the end? You see, the historical relationship to religious liberty in the land now called America is not as cut and dry as you undoubtedly learned in high school. Sure, there were groups of Europeans called the Pilgrims and the Puritans, and yes, they traveled to this new world to experience religious liberty. But that's not where the story really begins, and it's definitely not where it ends. Additionally, we often forget that the original United States Constitution did not include the Establishment Clause nor the Free Exercise Clause. That was only added in 1791 in the First Amendment of the Constitution. So, what happened in this land up until then? And why is it important for us to look back at our past to understand religious liberty today in America in 2021? Stick around to find out. We'll be right back. The story of religious liberty in America actually begins in Europe, England to be exact. It begins with a king, King Henry VIII. In 1502, Henry's brother Arthur died from illness just 20 days after taking his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Arthur's duties were suddenly placed in young Henry's lap as he became Duke of Cornwall, Prince of Wales, and Earl of Chester. Yet one more duty was yet to come. In 1503, Henry was betrothed to his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. So began their treasure trove of trouble. Still too young to marry, Henry and Catherine remained in limbo for some time until Henry announced at the age of 14 that he did not want to marry Catherine. However, in 1509, his father, Henry VII, died, leaving his son, Henry VIII, to the throne. Surprisingly, Henry VIII then decided he would take Catherine to be his wife. However, after Catherine's first pregnancy ended in a stillbirth, and after the death of their first son at the age of seven, after three additional stillbirths and the death of Henry's illegitimate son in 1533, Henry VIII decided his chances of having a male heir to the throne with Catherine of Aragon were shrinking. It was then that Henry VIII sought to have Pope Clement VII annul his marriage with Catherine. But when the Pope refused, Henry launched the English Reformation and separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. In the same year of its separation from the Catholic Church, the Church of England experienced its first dissenters, who took issue with the state's interference of religious matters. Later, in 1609, a group of those separatists were, of course, the famous pilgrims who first came to America aboard the Mayflower. However, this landing on the shores of the New World was not the first time a group of religious separatists had sought religious liberty in the land that would later become America. In 1564, a group of French Protestants set up camp at Fort Caroline near present-day Jacksonville, Florida. While these European Protestant groups did find religious freedom from their home countries, they also experienced a new sort of persecution. Shortly after the Huguenots set up camp in Fort Caroline, the Spanish set up a forward operating base in present-day St. Augustine, Florida. In a letter to the Spanish king, King Philip II, Spanish commander Pedro Menendez de Aviles wrote that he had hanged all those he had found in Fort Caroline because they were scattering the odious Lutheran doctrine in these provinces. 
And while the Pilgrims and Puritans had wished to settle in a land that would be free of government intervention, they instead established a fusion of the two, a theocracy. Catholics and any other non-Puritans were banned from the new colonies, some even hanged for attempting to return to stand up for their beliefs. Religious liberty, obviously absent. As George Washington and his men won independence from England in 1776, American governing began in this land, and began it did with little religious liberty. In Massachusetts, only Christians were allowed to hold public office. In 1777, New York's Constitution banned Catholics from public office. In Maryland, Catholics experienced full civil rights. However, Jews did not. In Delaware, a Trinitarian oath was required for citizenship. And several states, including Massachusetts and South Carolina, had official state-supported churches. But finally, in 1779, the tides began to change in favor of religious liberty as Virginia governor and future president Thomas Jefferson drafted a bill that guaranteed legal equality for citizens of all religions, including those of no religion. This bill lacked support until Patrick Henry introduced a bill of his own in 1784 that called for state support for teachers of the Christian religion. As a result, Future President James Madison wrote an essay titled Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, which argued that the state should not support Christian instruction. In 1786, Virginia's legislature took Jefferson's plan for the separation of church and state and made it law, the Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom. And in 1787, as the framers of the United States Constitution gathered in Philadelphia, they wrote Article 6, which states that federal elective and appointed officials shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States, thus taking another step towards religious liberty in America. On December 15th, 1791, the First Amendment of the Constitution was adopted and included this sentence, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and thus the final word by which lawmakers and Supreme Court justices alike use to decide what does and does not constitute as legal, as religiously free in our country. In the decades since, the government of this nation has ruled in numerous occasions in favor of religious liberty for Americans. For example, in 1976, the House of Representatives voted to override the veto of a funding bill for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, now named the Department of Health and Human Services. This vote passed the first version of the Hyde Amendment. This amendment, named for Congressman Henry Hyde, prohibited the use of federal funds to pay for abortions except to save the life of the woman. And on October 22, 1993, President Clinton signed into law the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education and Related Agencies Appropriations Act, which included a new version of the Hyde Amendment that expanded the category of, of abortions for which federal funds are available under Medicaid to include cases of rape and incest. But in 2016, the Democratic Party platform changed in America. It became the first time the party explicitly called for the repeal of this law. It has since not been repealed, but with the Biden administration taking power this past Wednesday, the reality of that happening became very real. And with it, the reality of the end of the institution of religious liberty as a whole. So, why is the Hyde Amendment and religious liberty at large in danger? Well, let's start with Xavier Becerra. 
Becerra formerly served as the state of California's attorney general, a seat held by Vice President Harris before him. He is now President Biden's pick to run the Department of Health and Human Services. He also holds a view of religious liberty that should be frightening for any churchgoer, any parent who sends their child to a private Christian school, anyone who works for or relies upon a Christian charity organization, or anyone who works for or relies upon a Christian nonprofit in general. Becerra argues that religious liberty does not apply to any of these religious institutions. Instead, he argues, religious liberty only applies to the individual. That means that while you and I as private citizens can rely upon the First Amendment to protect our religious freedoms, our churches and other organizations like them cannot. This is, of course, no secret, as Becerra has spent years in court as California's attorney general suing the Little Sisters of the Poor. When President Barack Obama rolled out the Affordable Care Act in 2011, the Little Sisters of the Poor went to court, arguing that, because of their religious beliefs, they should not be mandated to include cost-free coverage for contraceptives, sterilizations, and drugs that can cause abortions in their employer health care plans. In 2017, President Donald Trump signed an executive order announcing new rules for the Affordable Care Act that would allow the Catholic nonprofit and other religious nonprofits like it to claim a religious exemption against the mandate. However, in 2019, Becerra, along with 13 other states, filed lawsuits in the U.S. Court of Appeals arguing that the Little Sisters of the Poor should not be exempt from these mandates. And President Biden, though not doing so on his first day in office, has said that the executive executive order signed in 2017 by President Trump will be rescinded within his first 100 days in office. Mr. Biden, a longtime supporter of the until 2016 bipartisan Hyde Amendment while serving in the Senate, changed his mind in the summer of 2019. At a campaign event in Atlanta, Biden announced plans to repeal the Hyde Amendment, making it lawful for your personal tax dollars to fund abortions. And Becerra will clearly be the agent to carry out that plan, an obvious threat to your freedom of conscience and the basic religious freedoms granted to each American. In addition to this, President Biden has promised that his administration will push the Equality Act through the Senate. The Equality Act, already moving through the House in May of 2019, never made it to the floor of the Republican-majority Senate. So what is the Equality Act? Well, it's a landmark LGBT rights bill that completely crushes religious liberty. For example, it cripples the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which helped ensure that reasonable invocations of religious freedom are permitted in private religious organizations, such as the private Christian college I attended and where my wife is now employed, who only hire employees and accept students who affirm their statement of faith. However, under the Equality Act, an LGBT person's claim of discrimination would win by default. The Equality Act also has the potential to declare churches and other houses of worship as public accommodations if they occasionally rent out their spaces to others or allow their space to be used as a polling place on Election Day. Hospitals and other establishments providing medical services could also be considered public accommodations, even if they are religious organizations or privately owned hospitals. 
This would allow the government to force those health care establishments and religious medical professionals to go against their religious conscience and provide sex change surgeries and gender transition hormones. Essentially, the Equality Act is all but equal. Instead, it elevates the rights of those who experience same-sex attraction and gender dysmorphia above those who hold to a traditional and biblical worldview in regards to sexual and reproductive health. It would appear that the Biden administration has all sides of the anti-religious liberty camp locked down, an administration that opposes religious liberty for religious organizations and that also opposes religious liberty for individuals. Is this the beginning of the end for religious liberty? I think it may be. But the real question is, what do we as Christians have to fear? If you ask Christ, we have nothing to fear. Instead, we have reason for rejoicing. If you had been zoning out for a minute, that surely got your attention. How in the world can I possibly encourage you to rejoice when I've just claimed that this may be the beginning of the end of religious liberty in America? Well, it's easy, really. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may ask, Nick, are you seriously saying that Christians are being persecuted in America? Well, not necessarily. I do acknowledge that there are those in other countries around the world who have it gravely worse than we. And I do not claim that we are experiencing in America anything like the religious persecution we read about in the Bible, but I believe Jesus' words and sentiments still apply here. I think we still have reason to rejoice. We have reason to rejoice because what we are fighting for is a righteous cause. And I believe we can use the agenda of secular culture as a barometer of where our hearts are. In the book of John, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are not called to be of this world. We are not called to be loved by this world. We are called to disrupt the status quo of this world by standing firm on the truth of the Bible. But if we aren't careful, we forget that that means to stand firm on the truth of the cross as well. You see, if we storm the world with truth and power but lack love, we are nothing but noise. However, if we storm the world with truth and power in love, laying down our rights as Christ did on the cross, giving our lives to serve those of the world in love, going along with the punishment man says we deserve so not to relinquish our faith, if we do these things as Christ did these things, we will begin to see truth prevail. We will see the understanding, the view of the cross prevail in our world. As I watched the inauguration of President Joe Biden, I was moved by two things towards the end of the ceremony. The first was a singing of Amazing Grace by Garth Brooks. Now, I have to say, as a fan of both traditional hymns and country music, I was thrilled to see both on display on the world stage. But what was even more thrilling were the words that were being proclaimed over the grounds that hold the seat of American government. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
Oftentimes, we forget that the ones who stole our Lord's religious liberty were the religious from which Christ came. The scriptures remind us that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. We forget, as we spoke of earlier in this episode, as well as in last week's episode, that some of the most heinous crimes of religious persecution came from those who claimed religion themselves. We neglect, innocently or not, to recognize that those who came to this land expecting religious liberty in turn took the religious liberty of others. How can we then, as Christians in America, desire religious liberty if we have forgotten that we, too, have gone astray? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Were it not for that amazing grace that saved a wretch like you and I, if it were not for that amazing grace that took lowly sinners lost and blind and made us found and gave us sight, if it were not for that amazing grace, there would be no liberty to speak of. Liberty from sin, that is. But as the old hymn reminds us, The Lord hath promised good to me, His words my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Our Lord promises good to us even in the face of religious persecution. He promises good to us even in a country where religious liberty is fading. And in His word we read that we have hope. We find that hope not in party or politic, not in country nor flag, not in president nor senator. No, we find that hope in Christ. He will be our shield in the darkness of this world and our portion when it leaves us hungry. And that he will be as long as life endures. We have nothing to fear but only to rejoice for our Lord has overcome the world. The second thing that moved me was a poem by Amanda Gorman that she read during Wednesday's ceremony. Gorman, the nation's first ever youth poet laureate, concluded her poem with these words. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. While I'm unsure if Gorman was invoking the light which we know to be our Lord Jesus Christ or not, when she read these lines, I was brought to tears by the truth that it brings to the lives of Christians around the nation. We must step out of the shade, set aflame by the Spirit of the Lord and unafraid of the world we are facing. And there is, without a doubt, always light. For our holy scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and He is always here with us. If only we will be brave enough to see him. If only we will be brave enough to take the light and let it shine in every area of our lives. We must be the light to the world. We must be hope for the world. We must be images of Christ in this world being truth and sacrificial love to our neighbors. Red and blue, black and white, rich and poor, to them we must be the light. If only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Be brave today. I'm Nick Clay, and this is Culture and the Cross.
Hey, I want to thank you guys for sticking around for the entire episode. Like always, if you enjoyed this, if you got something from it, if you feel like this touched your life in any way, first I want to say thank you for listening, but I also want to say please share it with a friend, with a family member. Share it on Facebook, on on Instagram, wherever you are. Share it with a friend as you're talking to them on the phone. Just get it out there so we can reach more lives. Don't forget that Culture in the Cross is a part of the Grace River Podcast Network. The mission of Grace River Church is to see every generation experience the transforming power of God in every area of their lives. Grace River Church is located at 5045 Indian River Road in Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23464. Our services are at 10 a.m. each Sunday morning. You are welcome to join us in person or go to graceriverva.com live and watch there as well. Thank you again for being here. I'm Nick Clay. This is Culture in the Cross. We'll see you next week.